Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. Joshua. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin. And this is Get Off My World. We're three guys and the occasional guest who love the classic Doctor Who series and can be made to watch the new series too. We'll take you through five rounds rapid and get down to what is great and not so great about our favorite show. And as always, we are starting with a round we like to call Temporal Grace. And that's something positive, exciting, or fun about Doctor Who. Pat? There was a brief article in The Telegraph uh, in mid-December when the new Prime Minister of England, Theresa May, said something nice about Doctor Who like Mm -hmm. she likes to watch it on the Christmas break. And the response from Peter Capaldi was, that was quite a surprise that she was so keen on it, so I hope she takes this message of tolerance and kindness and compassion to heart. So as far as political speech goes, that's pretty mild. Yes. Uh, but uh, it's nothing compared to, say, the speech that Meryl Streep just did at the Golden Globes yep. not long ago. But uh, in these days, I am looking for any sort of evidence of kindness and tolerance and <laughs> compassion, particularly coming from um, actors or celebrities that I admire. And so that warmed my heart to the degree that it can be warmed these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that is the most positive thing I've heard out of Theresa May's mouth. She, she, she also likes Poirot. Yes. Well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> I do remember, like, many years ago that, of all things, Margaret Thatcher was on Desert Island Discs. <laughs> and, and she said her all-time favorite song was Telstar by the Tornadoes. I don't know it. Oh, it, it, it's like one of the big instrumental rock songs of, like, the early 60s. <laughs> wow. And, and, and I was just, like, very charmed that she was really into the, the song Telstar. <laughs> Is that your temporal grace? <laughs> no, actually not. My temporal grace is uh, uh, just this past week, California was hit by something labeled Pacific Storm Gallifrey. How did I miss I that? I saw that headline. What's the deal with that? It, it, it was a, uh, a storm uh, that never got to the size of being, uh, I guess it's, I guess they're typhoons if they're in the Pacific. Okay. Uh, not, not hurricanes, but uh, it never got to that degree of, of storm, but apparently they now have a system of, I guess, naming them after fictitious planets or something? I don't know. Wild. You're sure? And it I, 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 don't, I don't know what the system is, but it was, it was formally named... Pacific Storm Gallifrey. But it sort of petered out before it became... It just... Uh, California just got a lot of rain. Okay. So it was, it was kind of like 80s Gallifrey then. Yeah, yeah. It was, you <laughs> the know, storm ended up being... Yeah, you would think like uh, if you're going to name a storm after Gallifrey, it would be like this horrible destructive force. <laughs> well, but, the Daleks called the Doctor the oncoming storm, right? Well, that, there you that go. was their term for it. So they probably were very... All the Californian Daleks were really... <laughs> So, frighted. So Pacific Storm 10th Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Holy moly! We best split! Well, my temporal grace is kind of 
semi-related to real life, as in it's related to another fictional franchise, Star Wars. And we'll be talking a little more about Star Wars later in the podcast. And this might be old news to everybody here and everybody listening, but I still wanted to express my amazement at it. Because I saw that Rogue One cast Spencer Wilding to play the body of Darth Vader. And as we also know, the original Darth Vader was played by David Prowse, now, both these men have been in Doctor Who playing minotaurs. <laughs> and that was, it. that was it. That's all I have. But that is awesome. That, David Krause uh, was in The Time Monster. In The Time Monster, yep. And Spencer Wilding was in the Matt Smith story, The God Complex, as that minotaur creature monster thing. That's that, that is amazing. And now there's going like to be all ca- these people going out for minotaurs in the hopes of getting into Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> We need an actor of some very large size yeah. doesn't mind dressing up in a bunch of crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's probably a, a smaller pool there. You don't, you don't cast Toby Jones as a minotaur in Doctor Who. I'm sure minotaurs come in a variety of sizes. <laughs> Kenny Baker played a minotaur originally. That's how he was cast as Doctor Who. <laughs> so, for our second round... Special Topics Dalek. Joshua has a question for us this week. Josh? Yes, guys, of all the Doctor Who stories that we have watched, rewatched, I should say, for this podcast, what story changed the most in your estimation in its reviewing? Mm, that's a good one. That is a good one. The one that comes to mind for me is Ferrantios, which I remembered liking better when I saw it when I was younger than when I saw it as an adult. I don't think it was had anything to do with the Tractators, which are, you know, let's be blunt, one of the dumber-looking <laughs> Doctor Who monsters and, you know, guys-in-a-suit type things. I think I just, I, I was able to notice more things that were kind of strangely illogical, like the mining machine that has the person in the front of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think when I first saw it, I was just kind of fascinated by Oh, it's set like way, way in the future, mm-hmm. 10 million years or something like that. There, there, there were elements that were more like, ooh, cool to me when I was a kid, and now watching it, I, it, it just seemed uh, like they didn't really do that much with them. Yeah, it's one of those ones where there's a lot of concept, mm-hmm. and there's some execution issues in said concept. <laughs> <laughs> when I was younger, I, I was much more excited by the high concepts yes. in Doctor Who episodes and glossed over failures of execution. Well, that's kind of a good segue to what I was going to mention, which is Battlefield that we talked about with Ariel not too long ago. Mm -hmm. I've always had kind of a fraught relationship with it. I've seen it several times. Uh, But that's that era of Doctor Who that I always find so chintzy. A lot of it is the bad music, and a lot of it is that it's all filmed on video, and it doesn't have a good look to it. And, well, I mean, I could go on about the the myriad ways in which I don't really appreciate that era aesthetically. Uh, But now that that's all sort of already established in my brain i was able to bring myself a little more into the story of it and appreciate the ambition of it and uh appreciate gene marsh's performance and nicholas courtney's performance more than i had the first time where i was just getting kind of embarrassed by all the jerks hitting each other with swords (laughs) but then i also have a second answer too which is uh anything that i had originally just heard the audio of that i've since watched a reconstruction of even some of the the telesnap reconstructions Mm -hmm. like we did um the Celestial Toymaker not long yep. ago. Now, none of us particularly liked The Celestial Toymaker, and it wasn't fun to watch in any media. <laughs> but it was infinitely more enjoyable to see, even as the tele- telesnap reconstruction, than 
uh, to hear the original audio. Uh, I can't, I can't even picture how boring that would have been just listening to the audio. Of yeah, it. and I did that, you know, 10, 12 years ago or whatever yeah. when it came out. And it was like, boy, what a snooze. So <laughs> It really was. Yeah. Even just the the minor distraction of here's a new photograph in front of your eyes every 30 seconds or so helps greatly. And some of the ones, like uh, Enemy of the World, for example, where I'd never actually seen the entire thing. I'd only heard, I'd probably seen one or two. Well, it was famously yeah, one entirely missing. Yeah. yeah, but the audio was still out there. So I yeah. think I heard that back in the day, and it was kind of, eh, whatever. But it really came alive once, uh, oh, once yeah. we saw the, uh, the reconstructed ones. I think the the number one story for me is Time Monster, where I I was with all of fandom out there. I thought it was really a boring, crap episode when I saw it when I was young. Even, you know, in my 20s or so, I think the last time I saw it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and I didn't care for it at all. And when we watched it again for this podcast, it not just was better, it shot up in my estimation. It's one of the most underrated stories, I think. I think it is stylistically something that people don't like, and they Mm -hmm. call it a bad episode Mm -hmm. because aesthetically it is more comic book-like. It has a strong sense of humor. Um, It has some sitcom-like moments, but I think it's very cohesive. I can understand people not enjoying that style of Doctor Who, but for the unit family aspects, for witty dialogue, uh, I just love it to death. I'm with you. I, I'd i seen Time of the Monster uh, <laughs> at some point in the past, and it essentially escaped me, uh, but watching it this time, you're right. I I think at the time I said, if you don't like this, you don't like Doctor Who, which is a deliberately <laughs> provocative thing to say, but I kind of mean it, because uh, it's... It's a thing of so many different parts. It starts with the unit sequence, and that's fairly traditional unit stuff with the master coming in pretending he's some scientist who's doing whatever nonsense he's doing, and then you've got good stuff with the brigadier, and then all of a sudden we're in ancient Atlantis, and Ingrid Pitt is there, and there's a Minotaur there, and they're like, what the heck? Wow. And then you're in this otherworldly space where they're talking to Kronos. It's just... And it has a device called Tom Tit. (laughs) I cannot stress that enough. That by and, itself would have raised it in my yes. estimation. And baby Benton. It's got <laughs> everything you could want. Naked John Levine. <laughs> and all the unit characters get a little spotlight. Everyone gets uh-huh. to do something fun and clever and participate in the story. I just, I love it. I think we should be bigger advocates for the Time yeah. Monster in this podcast. The Time Monster evangelists. We have talked about maybe doing a commentary that we record as a podcast. And that's <laughs> high on my list to try to change people's opinion of the Time Monster. Yeah, I'm there. I'm good. I, yes, I agree. Time Monster. Evangelical. Yes. <laughs> About the time monster. We're going to come knocking on your door, people. <laughs> Excuse me, have you heard of Tom Kitt? <laughs> I have some literature. <laughs> okay, next up, it's time for the randomizer. And in its infinite random wisdom, the randomizer has selected Planet of the Spiders, the last third Doctor's story uh, from 1974, uh, directed by Barry Letts, and written by Robert Sloman and an uncredited Barry Letts because the BBC had some kind of rule about directors couldn't be credited as writers and vice versa or something. Or Buddhists. Buddhists couldn't be writers either. (laughs) And uh, also uh, noteworthy as the first story that introduced the concept of regeneration. Well, the term regeneration. The term regeneration. Uh, it's, it's always 
referred, you know, in the, between the first and second Doctor, between the second and third Doctor, it was... Renewal? Renewal, or, or a, change, a change of appearance, but pivotal episode for the whole regeneration thing. I think it was also the first mention of Doris. Yeah, it is. Uh, the Brigadier's girlfriend yeah. at the time. Doesn't the Brigadier call Dr. Sullivan? Yeah. Uh, so it's the first mention of Harry Sullivan, Harry who will Sullivan appear in the next episode. Yeah. It's also interesting to me... Uh, because it pulls together a lot of threads from the Third Doctor era. Mike Yates, post-dinosaur, yep. the hermit that the Doctor mentions in the Time Monster, we get to actually meet, and the Blue Crystal from the Green Death is yep. the pivotal story point. For classic Doctor Who, that's a lot of previous story points to bring into that, that, a it, new, That's really a unusually arky, yeah. For me, part of that worked against it, Um or maybe that's sort of metonymically the same as what I was going to talk about on a larger scale, which is that the story, it's six parts. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a whole lot of bizarre, random things all mixed together. Yeah. We have all of these continuity references, the Metabilis three reference. We've got Barry Letts's Buddhist ideas, plus giant tyrannical spiders. Mm -hmm. Mike Yates comes back, so we, mm -hmm. we're dealing with that thread. Interminable chase scenes. Oh, good God. I love the chase scene. <laughs> Indulging John Pertwee's bizarre Venusian judo thing. Units there for a bit and then disappears, kind of like the Time Monster, where they're there for a few episodes and then we go to a completely different Well, uh, I read that location. they, whether this is true or not, they were actually recording a lot of robot at the same time, which might have been where the unit guys were for big chunks of it. That makes sense. That would, that would oh. make sense. Okay. Then you also have psychic abilities. You have the Tommy okay. character who develops like a Flowers for Algernon yep. thing. That uh, was kind of cool, I thought. I kind of like Tommy. Uh, yeah. All, I, uh, I'm not saying that I hate all these things. No, There is no. like a random a assemblage lot. of it, 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 things. There's a lot of assemblage of things, but I, but I, yeah. liked how, um, I liked how Tommy became like realistically intelligent. He didn't suddenly become... <laughs> Like a weird super genius, yeah. and and like he still like he could he could suddenly read uh, fine, uh, and he was mentally challenged in some way where you know like he couldn't read, and he could read fine, but he still had to like look up what the words meant and stuff. Yep, I'm I think like they missed a beat by not having him put on a smoking jacket <laughs> and get a pipe out. And <laughs> My favorite element of Tommy is that for no particular reason he's just taking books off the library shelf. He reads William Blake's oh, yeah. famous poem, "The." Tiger as part of his I accelerated like learning. <laughs> I do. Well, of course, I love William Blake, uh, but I also like the detail. First, he says, that's pretty. Then he says, no, that's beautiful. Now, yeah. be mm -hmm. beauty isn't the first thing that I think of when I, when I think of Blake's tiger, but I do like that Tommy has this rapidly evolving aesthetic sense yes. in parallel mm -hmm. with his intelligence. That's a fine little detail. For me, all those elements are part of what made it so fun to watch, it, as in I honestly felt they had six episodes worth of storylines going on. They, they may have been... Uh, <laughs> Kel Kelvin's making the I'm Celestial gonna... Toymaker face again. <laughs> I'm going to be in the minority in this one, I'm sure, but I loved all the things they were juggling i'm not saying it was this beautiful woven tapestry yeah. no, of no. high art by any means <laughs> yeah. but uh, if you're talking for a doctor who episode they had a lot of different characters and storylines to keep cutting back and forth mm -hmm. to and i am a sucker for that chase faults and no. all it just amuses the hell out of that, me that, that wasn't even really a chase scene that was like me playing with my hot wheels cars when i was like i eight. know and it's john pertwee playing <laughs> like, with his and, then, and, then, cars, and then he gets so. into this car and then he gets into this car and then, but and goes, they've all been pre-fueled for this chase sequence <laughs> and they left their doors open and and okay awesome. and, and and i say that as someone who with with a, a bizarre and irrational 
love of hovercrafts. <laughs> and there is a hovercraft chase in here. I should be all over this, but no. Is it Rumble in the Bronx, the Jackie Chan yes. movie, where there's the band that just <laughs> yes. for no reason, there's a, there's a big hovercraft that's it's, coming through, and they stop playing, and they go, hovercraft! <laughs> and, they and then rock out. That is... That is one of my favorite, just bizarre, inexplicable things in any movie ever. It's just the, the hovercraft scene in Rumble in the Bronx. There's also an autogyro, like in You'll Only Live Twice. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also made me think of the, the chase scene. Is it in Live and Let Die? I just thought Roger Moore was going to show up. What's the one he's chased by a cop in there, too? Oh, they, yeah, they're, yeah. There are a lot of long it's James a, Bond chase sequences. Well, yeah, there's two. There's uh, yeah, in Live and Let Die, I think it was where he's chased by the Southern cop. Yep. Oh, that's it's got my fit. Everybody <laughs> hates Sergeant J.W. Pepper, and for good reason, <laughs> because he's terrible, and he's a redneck Southern stereotype, but he does get the funniest line in any James Bond movie ever. <laughs> Because the whole thing goes on for like 15 minutes and cop cars are going off everywhere and the boat goes through the wedding and everybody's smashed up and the, 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 the sheriff finally gets up to Roger Moore who's coming out of, uh, you know, adjusting his tie. Of course. And he says, what are you, boy? Some kind of doomsday machine? <laughs> it just I, cracks me up every time. I, I, I'm rather fond of like when... He runs into James Bond in Thailand of all yep. places. <laughs> Man with the golden gun. Yeah. And, 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 and then he says, Hey, you're that English secret agent from England. <laughs> it's like, why did you bring that guy back? And why is he in Thailand? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like these James Bond things. Well, it's the same period, for one thing. Yep. It is live and let die, Man mm-hmm. with the golden gun, period. It even has Stuart Fell as the comedy tramp who gets run over yep. by... It should have been played by you, Josh. That's, that's such a Josh <laughs> character. But it's Stuart Feld, a long-time uh, stuntman yep. on the show. He gets run over by the hovercraft. The only thing that he's missing is the the bottle that the tramp in uh, Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden yeah. Gun has. Where like, oh, look at that gondola going, you know, flying through the air. And then he looks at his bottle <laughs> and, and then throws, throws it, it away. Gotta stop drinking. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. It, there are a lot of hoary old cliches in this, but... Um, Oh, and, and the actor who plays Lupton does some great um, driving face acting. <laughs> you know, all these like, close-ups doing double takes. and mm-hmm. There's a lot of acting going on in that chase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Acting with capital letters and an exclamation point at the end of it. We do have to address uh, the spiders themselves. Eight legs. With the eight legs, yes. Spider is a forbidden word. Calvin. Wow, you would be dead right now. Uh, but uh, on the planet of the hippies, they, they are they are rather notorious as a weak creature effect. I think in in Doctor Who fandom. Uh, by by the way, they're they're giant spiders, but they're not like giant spiders except for the great one. Big enough that you'd be like, oh wow, that, that's <laughs> like, a giant spider. Yeah. I better put on my big boots to step on this one. <laughs> yeah. uh, like a wolf spider size. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the set choices and direction don't really do the spiders any favors. Like, their meeting room on, on Medibulus 3 is just basically like a couple shelves in a bare room yeah, where they just kind of sit there. They have the weird shelves I was noticing that are up along the wall. Yeah. That almost look Th- like they There's no way knick-knacks. to get up on them. Un- unless those are all, like, uh, walkways for the spiders or just an empty bookshelf that they, they just moved in. Is yeah. What I thought they still have boxes of stuff that they haven't unpacked. Yeah, yeah it's temporary. <laughs> yeah. They're building the spider White House down the street right now. <laughs> the, the spiders don't don't really bug me. I mean, they yeah. are pretty rudimentary puppets, but it's one of those special effects. And I know it's really random with Doctor Who fans what 
low budget special effects bug you and what low budget special effects yeah. don't but those spiders n never did they're okay with you You're, yeah i've said before that i i look for bits of things of the old show to enjoy i don't really look for coherency necessarily mm -hmm. uh but this does push the envelope of that for me and part of that is the coherence envelope <laughs> yeah the coherence envelope it, i i i admire like you do the sort of indulgent assemblage of crazy mm -hmm. stuff, but for me, it's it's too ramshackle. Uh, it doesn't work as well as something like the Time Monster, and I kind of resisted Barry Letts's and I suppose Terrence Dix's thematic attempts through it. The Doctor goes back to Metabolus Three because he has to face his fears, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and Campo or Choji or whoever Campo yeah. says that it's the Doctor's greed for knowledge that he needs to overcome, which might be broadly appropriate thematically but it's not actually the reason that the doctor stole the blue crystal in the first place is the reason he took it was to show off to joe that he could mm -hmm. he's kind of irritated at her at the time like i'm gonna go to metabolus 3 without you blah 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 so yeah, like it, they're, they're trying to shoehorn in this uh retroactive psychology for the third mm -hmm. doctor it was never really there the third doctor is a fairly straightforward individual <laughs> he yeah. doesn't have a lot of psychological depth and i i resisted having that retcon reading come in at this late date his confrontation with the spider i think works with his character when he gets controlled by the spider and the spider makes him walk against his will mm -hmm. a loss of control seems like that would terrify yeah. the third doctor the, the doctor who has been trapped on earth and had his uh, autonomy taken away from him mm -hmm. for the spider to be able to just so effortlessly control him i thought that aspect of it worked i will say that you could make a case for uh the great one being the most megalomaniacal Doctor Who villain maybe ever. I like that she sounds like she's in a state of permanent orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know if it was... Um, I don't think she did the voice of the Great One, but like one of one of the spider's voices is uh, Kismet Delgado, who's Roger Delga Delgado's widow. Yeah. Um, I don't think she did the Great One, but she was one of the council. Yeah, you know. cool. And, and uh, you know, the original, original concept for the story... Uh, uh, was going to be a final confrontation with the Doctor and the Master, and the Master was going to die at the end of it, and like like have some kind of change of heart and die saving the Doctor's mm -hmm. life. Roger Delgado died before that could happen. So, at the time that that was planned, though, they didn't know it was going to be John Pertwee's last episode. Yeah. It was just planned for the last episode of that season. Yes, there are things that I like. Yeah, well, ah, there, okay, there's tons of stuff that I like. This is the last appearance of that opening credit sequence where the stars turn into the time tunnel because it's mm -hmm. going to be uh, solely the time tunnel from mm -hmm. uh, Tom Baker yep. on, which is what I grew up watching. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really like this one. I don't know. There's just something about it that's very appealing to me. Uh, a lot of the dialogue is kind of fun. There's the stupid 1950s music hall show of the, the oh, comedian. Oh, I forgot about that. That I they start that. at the beginning and they just looking disgusted at I each just, other. But It's just, it, it is kind of awesome that there is a Doctor Who story that starts with a really terrible stand-up act yeah it's, <laughs> it's a joke about archimedes being a streaker yes <laughs> it, it's also great because it's clearly a budgetary restraint that they just keep the camera on the doctor and the brigadier in the audience but it ends up having artistic merit <laughs> it's all they could do but it ends up being a really cool device and then when they cut to the exotic dancer and the brigadier lights up <laughs> i think i'll have some of the unit soldiers do some of those exercises <laughs> Yeah. So goony. The poor Professor Clegg, man. Yeah, we should talk about that. That's poor a Clegg. Lot. So they get they get this poor jerk killed. 
Uh, first, he's awesome. I love it. He dresses like the novelist Kim Newman. He's got the cloak and stuff. <laughs> and he's also totally free to in, in admitting that he's a fraud. He says, I just make this stuff up. He's, he's like Penn Gillette in that way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just making this up. And he gets smoked because the doctor doesn't recognize that the crystal is actually something uh, something really dangerous. Yeah. So I was like, that's wrong. John, come on. This poor guy. No one seems that fussed that he just died mm-hmm. and that they just killed him. I mean, the doctor does mention uh, when Benton volunteers to look at the crystal because he's more expendable than the doctor. The doctor does say, you know, I already have one man's life on my yeah. conscience. So at least at first I was like, they're not even going to mention it. They're not even going to take his body out of your, the lab. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just throw a drop cloth over it. But uh, one thing about the story is that, it, it, again, it, it does kind of touch on uh, these Buddhist concepts that come up a lot in the Third Doctor era. But at the climax, it shows like a weird misunderstanding of Buddhism because like they're they're having to do the the meditation thing to create contact with Metabolus three or, yeah. or something. Oh man, yeah, they're 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 doing the chant Om Om, and the leader's like, "Keep trying, keep trying, we have to reach them." <laughs> om Om, harder, harder, harder. <laughs> chant harder. That's not how meditation works. Okay. Yeah, Buddhism is just kind of sinister in general in this one, too. Right? Yeah. They're all like either deluded or evil. It's, it's well, very it, let's... Or alien. It, it's like some <laughs> sort of like retreat for people with... For failures. It, yeah, for failures. <laughs> it's, it's not like 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 a, a mental health yeah. thing exactly. It's just like, like, was Lupton an alcoholic or something? No, he had, it was sort of a death of the salesman sort of story about yeah. like he was a businessman and he lost his job. Yeah. And, He's going to show them. Mm-hmm. I liked Lupton a lot, though. He seemed like a real petty person. And so as a bad guy, it was really satisfying. You know, I, I at the time, I was a little disappointed in him as as a Doctor Who villain because he is just so... Mundane. Just, so, just sort of mun, super mundane and petty. And, and the second his usefulness is over, the, the spiders squash him like, well, a spider. There is that great <laughs> mo- there is that great moment when he learns the mental trick and turns it on the spider. Yeah, Th- that is a great. That moment. That is a really great moment. Oh, oh, it almost felt something like this, and then she's like, "Oh!" <laughs> and she's like, "You're way smarter than the two legs on my planet," which is true because then we get to meet the two legs, and I will say that is one of the biggest disappointments about this story. They're pretty wet. Yeah, the the whole story stops for that episode. Is it? Well, episode they're, they're three? humans, right? Yeah, they're, they're colonists. They're colonists who like crash landed there and lost all their technology. As I understand, which is kind of cool that those aren't alien spiders, but they're actually spiders from the colonists mm-hmm. that got augmented by the blue crystal. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they actually sort of created cool, their yeah. own dominators. Yeah, um, but they're just generic space people. They're, they're yeah. like I don't know. I, I got kind of a weird hippie vibe from them. You Certainly the long hair and the mustache. Maybe the long and hair the and the mustaches and the, and the fact that and, 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 the, the, and the tunicky clothing, I guess. Yeah. But gay bar of the spiders. Is the the of the... <laughs> it's only because of the mustaches, right? It doesn't signify the same thing as it did in 1974. Uh, it's too bad because the actors are not bad. I've seen these guys before. That's Gareth Hunt as Eric. He was mm-hmm. in the New Avengers with Joanna Lumley and Upstairs Downstairs with John Marsh and Pauline yep. Collins, among other things. And the other guy is Ralph Arliss, who is a guy who's all over British television in this period. Uh, he was, I recently saw him in the 1979 Quatermass conclusion. Yep. But they... Yeah, they, they couldn't be written more generically. No, and you can tell they're working really hard to give it some sort of almost Shakespearean meaning to this generic dialogue. 
I do. I, I do really like Sabor's equanimous attitude when he's webbed up. He's just like, oh, we'll probably get get eaten. Like I don't know, a week or two. It's like the dish of the day in the Hitchhiker's yep. Guide to the Galaxy. And it gives uh, Pertwee his best line in this whole thing when he says, "As much as I admire your stoic acceptance of the inevitable, I would appreciate it if you'd shut up for a moment." <laughs> yeah, and and when when um, the Doctor escapes from the the cocoon, it's and he's trying to think of the name of Harry Houdini. Yeah. And it just, which is clearly just to cover the amount of time it took John Pertwee to get out of this thing, <laughs> but but it, it, it's just agonizingly long. It's a pretty labored joke, yeah. Uh, and I'm also disappointed that uh, we never saw Ken Poe again because yeah. I really liked Ken Poe. Yeah, I found him a little. Uh, well, this is that sing-song Oriental it accent does have that. that we didn't hear in the celestial toy maker it does that have that do clearly here. here yeah uh, so that that really grated on me um, yeah but it, it is unusual that it's it's creating a lot of this stuff on the fly it's one mm. little reference to a hermit that the doctor knew that was from some pre from carnival mm. of monsters i mm-hmm. think time time monster time monster yep okay um, which was written by uh, Sloman as well. Oh, so, well, that explains it. Uh, but uh, now they introduce him, and he does. Campo is able to project a Choji, mm-hmm. like the Watcher in Legopolis. Yep. So this, it, it's never quite explained what that is, and even the Doctor doesn't understand it. Yeah, he, does, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and he doesn't recognize Campo at first either. Mm-hmm. So that's like that says something odd about. Time Lords, like, do they recognize each other? Do they not recognize each other? Do yeah. they not understand the processes of regeneration? Yeah. Or is this this emanation, abnormal. is it abnormal? In um, the Armageddon Factor, Drax recognizes the Fourth Doctor right away. Right. Yeah. Going forward, Time Lords seem to recognize each other no matter what regeneration they're in. Yeah, it's inconsistent. I do kind of like this, you know, especially in these earlier regeneration stories, that there's something extremely unfathomable about regeneration where mm-hmm. like you know you can have these sort of psychic projections of of yourself and, and like it, it frequently like you need like an assistant to regenerate it seems like yeah he needed campo's help yeah although campo's regeneration his regeneration mm-hmm. is very mild mm-hmm. and very mm-hmm. quick yeah mm-hmm. and this is the first time they specifically say that uh, the doctor is going to act a little weird after the fact mm-hmm. and right. it seemed to suggest that that was because of a difficult regeneration. And I, I really uh, or, enjoyed... Or just setting up the audience for, like... <laughs> we yeah. cast a real weirdo to <laughs> yeah, like, the doctor, just, <laughs> just so you know. We have no idea what this guy's going to do. <laughs> there are a few other things that I do really like about this episode. I like that phantom tractor that almost kills Sarah and Mike <laughs> on the road. It's a, it's a very close lift from the Hammer movie, The Devil Rides Out. In that movie, the Satanists cast a spell and the windshield goes opaque, so they almost crash. So this is very similar in the way it's shot and what happens. And I also want to do a nice shout-out to Sarah's dumb plastic globe necklace. I don't know if you (laughs) noticed it in that last sequence. The 1970s were a weird period where jewelry didn't have to be expensive or really distinctive-looking, and a mass-produced look Mm -hmm. was basically okay. So it's these... Cheap ass plastic multicolored spheres on her neck. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's the 1970s I grew up in. Yeah. And I mean, if this weren't the 70s and they didn't have tons of gaudy jewelry on, they never would have made it past Tommy. They, you know, it's like everyone constantly has shiny things to give to Tommy. Any other era, they wouldn't be wearing anything to distract Tommy with. 
I like that he tells Sergeant Benton, next to Mrs. Samuel Pepys, you make the finest <laughs> cup of coffee in the world. Aww. Mrs. Samuel Pepys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, I will say in, in conclusion that, like, almost all of the Pertwee episodes that I've watched for this podcast, I enjoyed it more on the rewatching than I have in the past. While I totally see why this isn't everybody's favorite story it has its flaws but there's such an attempt to make this a sort of celebration of the era even when it fails <laughs> even when it's celebrating things that weren't people's favorite part of the john pertwee era mm-hmm. there, there's still something fun about watching that as a doctor who fan yeah i remember revisiting this on my own like a couple of years ago and and i'm still not very hot on it in fact i may go so far as to say it's the the weakest regeneration story that doctor who ever did maybe we should Discuss that in depth at some later Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I think we will. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm told we have a new round that we're going to debut called Relative Dimensions, in which we talk about... Uh, <laughs> Joshua, are you responsible for this? We're going to talk about Star Wars? Yes. This is a Doctor Who podcast. I know, but we're going to talk about Star Wars just a little bit. Be for a whole round. For a whole round. Oh. It's you know, 10, 15 minutes. It'll, it'll be fine. We'll get back to Doctor Who, I you promise. can't possibly talk about Star Wars for 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, but why? Because everybody is watching Star Wars. We have to talk about it, too. But, but your brother Joseph has a whole podcast about <laughs> Star Wars, which we'll link to in the show notes. Yeah called the Force Center Podcast. And it's not enough. <laughs> we're making up for Joe's lack, is what we're doing. I didn't want to have to put it in a podcast. But yes. This is bull- <laughs> <laughs> We're still going to do it. Hey, let's bring Tony into this. All right, I'm he's, in. He's like a rational person. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I did actually manage to see it, despite uh, not having time to do anything else. I did see it last week. All right, so who here thought it was one of the best Star Wars movies ever made. That's what I hear on the internet. I'll, I'll say this. I liked it more than I liked Force Awakens. But I didn't think Force Awakens was like the greatest Star Wars movie ever made either. It's not as good as the original trilogy. I don't think that's physically possible, to be honest. Uh, but, but I liked it. Yeah, you know, I liked it pretty well. But pretty well is mostly how I feel about anything I don't have to examine too closely. Like <laughs> Doctor Who or my own soul. So, <laughs> I thought it was both a pretty good movie and a pretty good Star Wars movie. I The thing to compare it to is probably Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure where I follow that because they are fairly different. And Force Awakens had a huge nostalgia factor for yep. me. Just being able to see Carrie Fisher and, and Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill for a, for a minute, yep. uh, that, that was powerful for me but i don't know whether it makes it a better or a worse movie even at the time i thought force awakens was just star wars again isn't it It just blew up another death star Um, yeah so yeah you know there's that and i appreciate that rogue one was trying to do something different i'm not sure it was different enough for me i have this whole thing about prequels though right it's it's like you you finish reading a book and then you realize oh i missed a chapter so I'm going to go back, you're going to go back and you're going to read the chapter, and that might complexify or, or give nuance to the things that you're doing, but it's not going to be like 
a really powerful aesthetic experience, no. I don't think. It's a missing chapter. It's not a new book. Yeah. You're not going back. It doesn't stand alone as much. And I feel, oddly, as repetitive as The Force Awakens was, structurally and, and narrative-wise, I yeah. felt it was fresher to me than Rogue One. Rogue One felt mm -hmm. more handicapped by the storylines it had to connect. Mm -hmm. Some of them it actually had to connect, and some of it, clearly, the filmmaker felt obligated to put in. Like, for me, Grand Moff Tarkin just took me out of the movie. The Uncanny really? Valley of it? Yeah. I knew there was going to be CGI coming in, and I was really surprised at how how much I didn't have a problem with Peter Cushing. because Well, partly because I've seen some movies with some horrifically bad Uncanny Valley CGI, but I thought, I mean, they benefited by having older, craggy Peter Cushing, so it covered a lot of that. And I think knowing the limits of current CGI, I was willing to go with it a lot more, and I was impressed with what they were able to do with the up until now, really limited ability to do CGI. And I, I did think Princess Leia at the end was really bad. My other problem was it was, to me, a nerd trap. It's this nerd fascination mm -hmm. with um, Grand Moff Tarkin, and he was given too much screen time without doing anything to change what we know about Grand Moff Tarkin. Mm -hmm. And it took all the screen time away from Krennic, who was actually a fascinating villain. That so if you took... Grand Moff Tarkin away, had mm -hmm. him show up in just a, yeah. a, a video call. We could have had mm -hmm. that much more time with a new, interesting villain. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Uh, ben Mendelsohn as Orson Pink, Orson Krennic, uh, was... <laughs> Orson Pink. He's going to force this doctor <laughs> who <laughs> one way or the other. Uh, my brain works on certain channels, Joshua. Uh, no, he was awesome. He was probably my favorite part of the movie. I thought, uh, I'd never seen that actor before, and I want to see him in other things. I guess he was in The Dark Knight Rises, which I saw, but whatever. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, um, this thing about Peter Cushing. So I'm with you. Uh, I, it was very uncanny valley for me. It yeah. took me out of the movie, and I don't think that it lent itself. Yeah, it wasn't required by the the logic of the plot. Some people were kind of clutching their pearls about the ethics of whether they should you recast a, a dead actor in that way. And I think you know it's worthwhile having the conversation. But I kind of think about this because Peter Cushing's one of my favorite actors, and it's a strange sort of bookend to his career. I read his autobiography some years ago, and he, in that he mentioned that his first film role was in James Whale's 1939 adaptation of The Man in the Iron Mask. So what happens in that, he wound up having a tiny role in the movie, but what he was hired for was to be Louis Hayward's double. Louis was playing Louis, uh, Hayward was playing Louis IX and Philippe of Gascony. So those scenes where they appeared together, they needed someone to act against him and sword fight or whatever on the other side of the frame. Then they'd film it again, switching the positions, and then they'd splice the film together, which eliminated Peter Cushing's appearance completely and made it look like <laughs> Hayward is acting against himself. So it's somehow fitting that posthumously oh, Peter Cushing yeah. is now CGI replacing poor Guy Henry, who you never <laughs> see in the movie. Yes. I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of cute. Yeah, I think a lot of it is that, for whatever reason, Star Wars fans seem to be like the most hyper-conservative about what, star, what their favorite franchise is. It, it must be precisely this all the time. So, like, okay, here, here's a weird idea. You could have just had another actor play Grand Moff Tarkin. <laughs> you know, that used to be fairly common. And it's like now we can't even begin to stomach that because there's going to be this deluge of, of tweets and Facebook posts about, like, how they've destroyed Star Wars completely because, like, a different actor is playing 
a part that hasn't actually been seen on screen in, good God, 50 years. No, 40 years, excuse they, me. They could have just had him re- <laughs> regenerate at the end of Rogue. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, Simple. no, I, I think there's just some uh, a certain... Like inflexibility he, among Star Wars fans that they were kind of trying to... Yeah, it felt like an obligation. Yeah. Like, it didn't further the story. Yeah. It would have been a nice small moment, but he did not need to be involved that much. And, like, part of the thing about this story is they have so much packed in, and there's so little screen time to learn about any of the characters. And it's weird. My, my biggest problem with this story is that it has too many compelling elements, and it spends almost no time on any of them. But yeah. that was kind of true of... Star Wars in general. Well, it's also true of war films in general. And this really is a Star Wars war film. And normally I don't like war films for that reason. Because it's like you're throwing all this stuff in the hopper and it just gets chopped up into pieces because because it's all going towards battle. And that definitely had that element. But I think it worked, at least I feel like it worked better in this movie as a war film. And I was was more on board with that because Mm. I kind of knew what... I was getting into getting in, which ironically enough, I went with my mom and she, I didn't know that she didn't know it was a prequel going in. So she was really confused by this. <laughs> and mommy, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I didn't know you didn't know. But oddly enough, that element of throwing so many things in, I actually was okay with, with the movie. And I feel like knowing that this is what the movie was going to be, I had, I enjoyed all of the stuff that was being thrown in, but since I knew it was not going to make it through to the end of the film for the most part... I think I didn't get as attached to it. Mm-hmm. Basically, I just agree with the review that Film Crit Hulk posted online. I don't know if you know Film Critic Hulk. Mm-hmm. He used to type in all caps, but that got annoying. But you know, Hulk think that this movie is. But it's, it, uh, we'll link to this in the show notes because he's great. Um, but he had a very uh, a series of cogent arguments about ways that this film could have been improved. I won't rehearse them entirely right now, but uh, ways to make the sacrifices more meaningful, ways to make the drama at the end uh, brighter and more dramatically uh, acceptable. And I agree with all of what he says, but at the same time, I also feel like the movie was working against it. It was working toward that war film logic where people can just be ground up in a meat grinder and people you love and care about are killed for no particular reason, like the pilot yep. is blown up in the ship. He doesn't do anything heroic while he's flying his ship. He's just blown up there, and yep. a bunch of people have to get themselves killed to pull a switch that we didn't even know was important, whatever. So so for me, it felt it fell a little between those two stools. Like, on the one hand, I wanted a war film, and then on the other hand, I wanted a dramatically meaningful Star Wars yeah. film where people were using the, the Force. And it felt like kind of neither one thing or the, or the other. Uh, I'm surprised no one's brought up KSRO yet. Alan Tudyk has K2SO. Mm-hmm. K2SO. Yeah. Yep. I loved K2SO. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised at how understated his humor was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which it, would work it, well yeah, with the, the darker it, movie. It, it, they, yeah, they, they, came, they, they came up with a, a, a whole new like comedy droid personality. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. let's do a different version of C-3PO. Let's do a different version of R2-D2. Well, and it also it was wasn't like, as far as like Marvin the Martian, where it was really forced, complainy yeah. humor. It was just, like you say, deadpan and dry. And it fit with his other dialogue I've, that was not humorous, but was just very strange. I've calculated the odds. They're they're bad. <laughs> they're they're very bad. But, yeah, but they were, <laughs> but it wasn't flat, so it was still it still had that that little ting to it, like he's he, digging you. When he he's just like 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 smacks uh, the guy for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you won't talk when I spoke. Yeah, he was getting method there. He's like Strax from the Paternoster Gang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that's some good character stuff. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I 
I, I mean, I, I mean, I liked it. Force Awakens mm-hmm. for me was too much like taking the exact plot of A New Hope and and just reversing a couple things in there, like you know, father son conflict. But oh, this time the son is evil. You know, let's stop the giant space station. Well, this time we make the space station a whole freaking planet, but it's still a space station. You know, it just seemed like exactly the same movie. What if it was a giant dragon egg? <laughs> well, that would be well, that would be terrible. But no. I, I, I'm sounding a lot crabbier about Force Awakens, and I think maybe I mean to, but it, it still just seems so beat for beat, exactly like uh, A New Hope. I think me. it comes yeah. down to what you enjoy about the original Star Wars films, yeah. and for me, it's never plot in Star Wars. Star yeah. Wars is not an intricately plotted it's series of films. Very simple. To me, it is the characters yeah. and their interaction, and how much the actors spark and and the sort of weird combination of heroics with mundane interactions that Star Wars really captured. And that's what I loved about The Force Awakens. And I think that, for me, in Rogue One, what was lacking is, like, I didn't feel like I knew any of these characters. And it's a little bit, I want to bring up, is that this is a new style of storytelling in these not just shared cinematic universes, but in shared media universes where there are comic books and there are animated cartoons. And there's a lot of stuff in Rogue One that feels like... We're just going to set this here, and we'll get back to it in a comic book yeah. or in Rebels. And I'm used to seeing a film where it's, you know, if we're going to see a Jedi Temple, we're going to learn more about the Jedi Temple. If we're going to see Saw Gerrera, and there's some sort of, like, rebel terrorist that have gone too far even for the Rebel yeah. Alliance, that we're going to fill in a that story. We're, we're in such an aggressively archy era for, for, for storytelling in films, where films basically exist to set up other films. Well, and all the rest of the transmedia stuff, like, like Josh is talking yeah. about. I would have preferred to have seen a television series with these characters, frankly, because mm-hmm. I've seen enough X-Wing battles to last me the rest of my life, honestly. It doesn't really... I, I was bored during the final yeah. X-Wing attack, uh, but I liked all of these people. I really... I, I loved all of the actors. Mads Mikkelsen, man, I oh. see him. So I'm a Doctor Strange the same week I watched this. I saw him on Hannibal. I love that guy. Um, but Donnie Yen and sure. a lot of the people who I, I'd never seen before, like Felicity Jones, and mm-hmm. I'd seen Diego Luna, I guess, in, in Itomama Tommy Yen many years ago when he was a kid, but this is the first time I'd seen him as an adult. I thought they were great. You hit it on the head. I would love to see like a Band of Brothers style six or eight part yes. like Rogue One, where you get to know these guys, you're in the trenches with them, you get to see the a little more of the backstory use, with Prennick. The miniseries used to be a TV thing and I, I don't know why we don't have many series now especially in in the netflix era but it's like no they still have to create like a full length season of 13 14 episodes yeah. it seems like richard chamberlain's still alive they seems unnecessary <laughs> I, I just i don't know about this whole thing here this is a doctor who podcast. you're right <laughs> i mean i think we, we can all decide that doctor who is better than star wars yeah, I mean, it, needed, it needed a tardis <laughs> I mean, come on, what are we going to talk about next? Hamilton? Are we going to talk about... Oh, can we talk about Hamilton? No. really very good. <laughs> I think I'm the last person uh, in my general tastes and bent who knows not one tiny detail Oh, it's Hamilton. so good. I, I, I don't Let's know any of Let's listen to it song. now. Let's listen to it now. <laughs> I'm throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. And you won't just... And now our fifth and final round, The Feast of Stephen. Our annual discussion of the Doctor Who Christmas episode. And today we will be talking about the return of Doctor Mysterio. Mysterio. <laughs> written by Stephen Moffat with our man Peter Capaldi returning as the 12th Doctor and uh, his new companion, Nardal. And I will say that that's my favorite thing about this entire episode is I was so skeptical about him coming back based on the River Song Christmas episode last year. 
but I really liked how they made him understated. He was a little comical, but they actually made him a real person for this. And I was like, wow, this might actually work. It was just no, <laughs> the I, doctor. I, 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 like, I was surprised. I like Nardo a lot, although I, I don't honestly know what the heck he's doing in this particular story. Yeah, I think he's adding grace notes. Yeah. Uh, I thought about the same thing, too, because he doesn't really do much uh, except yeah. pilot the TARDIS to take mm-hmm. Capaldi away at one point, which could have been done in any number of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm with Josh on this. I, I thought he added just the right amount of understated humor, and he had someone who knew the Doctor, so there was sort of a transitional yes. character between mm-hmm. the Doctor and the new, char- the new people that we haven't met yet. You can kind of interpret some of that to a degree. And I like that the doctor recognized that he was so lonely, he was going to go get this totally unthreatening head and cut it out, <laughs> cut it out of the robot body. <laughs> the guy like, I met 24 years yeah, ago. <laughs> he'll be my companion. He'll understand my pain. <laughs> this is weird. We haven't seen Capaldi since the last Christmas episode, yeah. which was also a goofy runaround. So now we've got until a year. Until the end. That was very emotional. That's yeah. kind of what the Christmas episodes are. I mean, they're... they're they're kind of lighter weight things in a way. Right. I'm not criticizing it for being lighter. It's only that in tempo, it's unusual because the last one we saw was light mm-hmm. until the emotional, uh, the emotional end of it. And then now we've got another romp, another runaround. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll put my cards on the table. I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was very fun. Um, it didn't work in the way that Husbands of River Song worked where it led up to a satisfying emotional conclusion. Yeah, this no. was very tacked on. I, I don't think that the mention of River at the end was superfluous. I don't see why yeah. we could have not just spent time with uh, our, our two new main characters, both of whom I thought were very good actors and whom yeah. I liked a lot. You're talking about the superhero and reporter. Yeah, the Superman whose names escape me right now. Yeah. But Superman and Lois Lane. Yeah, and we'll can we just call him Superman and Lois sure. Lane? Sure, that's who they are. Ghost and Lois Lane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But good acting all around. I, I much more enjoyed spending time with them than the kind of boring villain of the week, the, the guys whose heads come apart because they store their cell phones in there. Yeah, yeah. they were from... The last one. River Song. River, it has yeah. River Song. It's yeah. the same aliens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they're setting those guys up for future stuff for Series 10. Sure. But it seems to be something um, that Moffat wanted to return to or a budgetary reason. It's like, oh, we already got these guys. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're fine. You know, they're It's they're pretty villains. creepy to have... Characters that just split their heads open at an angle and take stuff out of their head. We just haven't met enough, Calvin. No. <laughs> you know, you just meet a few more of these guys. and So I'm vindicated, vindicated, okay. gentlemen, wow. in my belief that Capaldi should always be teamed with children. That opening scene where he's talking to the to the young kid who's playing Grant is... Hands down the best part of the whole tremendous. episode. Yep. So good. The delivery on both of uh, both of their parts are I loved it from it was a great way to start the story, and the memory of that kind of kept me through some of the longors in the yeah. in the middle part of it. And Capaldi has settled into this way where he can have this sort of gentle crankiness. So that he's when with kids, he he kind of lightly criticizes their their uh, tastes in comic books, <laughs> but he doesn't seem mean. Right? It seems in, in the way that kids kind of enjoy engaging with a grumpy uncle. This one, by the way, is also directed by Ed Basilgetta, who I think we talked about when we did our season nine discussion. He directed The Girl Who Died and The Woman Who Lived, mm. but uh, more to the point, he was the lead guitarist of the band The Vapors, famous for oh, the 1980 yes. hit Turning Japanese. Turning, really? Yes. <laughs> He's now a director. That's totally ridiculous because I just recently uh, picked up for a couple bucks uh, a used CD of like modern rock hits of 1980, 1981. And... 
turning Japanese is on. Naturally, that. yes. Because you why? couldn't leave that one off. No, you couldn't. That's I awesome. I really uh, think so. Yeah. <laughs> then you can go into nitpicky mode here for the moment. It, this is the podcast. Uh, Nitpick wh- away. What does Grant's mom do that they can afford to live on the 60th floor of a building in what seems to be downtown, downtown Manhattan? 60th story. Those yeah. windows shouldn't open, especially uh, if you've got a child <laughs> there. His mom works for some job that exists only on TV where TV characters can afford ridiculously awesome spacious apartments. She's the caretaker for the building, and so she gets a slightly reduced rent for uh, keeping the windows closed. I'm sure there is residential and, stuff and, and, outside and, of Trump Tower and, on the 60th uh, floor. And, and, and Grant's mom is written by uh, an Englishman who's never had to try and live in Manhattan and doesn't know what that entails. Can we also say that Harmony Shoals has windows that can withstand a blast equal to four nuclear explosions? <laughs> Wow! <laughs> Holy cow! I didn't know they made glass like that. I it's a clearly alien technology. Yes. And so the rest of the building, yep. I hope, is made out of that, too, because who cares if the windows can withstand it, if the steel <laughs> and the rest of it is just going to Isn't that part of the final plot? Yes. It's, it's a convoluted, ridiculous plot. It's absolutely preposterous. <laughs> Lex Luthor would toss it out immediately. <laughs> mm, too impractical. <laughs> You know, it's Stephen Moffat doing a parody of, of, of Superman. As like most parodies of Superman do, they kind of focus on aspects of, of the Superman mythology that I, I kind of wish they didn't focus on so much. The whole Lois Lane, I'm this dweeb who's in your life all the time and I'm obviously in love with you and you can't see it, but I actually love like your secret identity more and... You know, things like catching the spaceship with one hand while you're just standing on the roof of the building. (laughs) Which, maybe you could be strong enough to do that, but the physics of that would not work. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, for me it rang enough variations on the Superman thing that Mm. I was happy to go with it. The... Um, Maybe they went to the well with the nanny jokes just a a few too many times, but I still thought it was pretty good. I thought he was like, yeah. yeah. Moffat has never met a well that he won't go back to at least 10 or 12 times. <laughs> yeah, he, he's very frequently in love with his own jokes. Yeah. A bit more than the audience probably yeah. is. Yeah. And uh, that's one that didn't work for me. I was pretty good with everything but the, the squeak doll. And I don't know if that was a reference to something I didn't get. I, I tried to look it up. The squeak doll was kind of weird, but I, I, I kind of liked it as something, not, not a thing I would have thought of. It's a, it's a quick throwaway joke, yeah. but it became like a, 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 again, he kept going back to it mm-hmm. and even left the doctor with the squeak toy at the end. So, and, and then like, Mr. Huffle sent me down like a whole road. <laughs> dark, do you want to hear Internet this road? road? <laughs> yes, I do. So I actually loved the, the torture and salvation of Mr. Huffle. Okay. Uh, it reminded me a little bit, I don't know if you guys played Portal. Yes. The, the video game portal. Uh, the computer GLaDOS assigns you at one point a companion cube yes. that you need to take care of. It's just a cube. There's no personality. It doesn't have a face. It's not animate or whatever. In fact, it's aggressively non-animate. It's just a cube. But you have to take care of it. And your emotional trajectory, you as a human being playing this game is that you develop a weird affection for your companion cube (laughs) so when it's destroyed you're like i lost my companion cube and it 
makes you feel uncomfortable. It highlights that it's just a slightly more absurd fictional artifact than any other video game creation, like Floyd from Planetfall or Cortana from Halo. So it's like this in a way, so like the pity and affection that the Doctor feels for people in the Doctor Who universe, and by extension the pity and affection we feel for fictional people like the Doctor is arbitrary and has no relationship to whether the object <laughs> of those feelings are even alive or in any way real. And I was like, yeah, it's just absolute, it's fiction. We just agree that this particular thing is animate enough in a fictional way that we can uh, afford to expend our emotional energy at it. And it also opens up these weird things, these uncomfortable moments in the show's history, like in Carnival of Monsters when the doctor tries to talk to the chickens because you never necessarily know who the intelligent life yeah. forms are on any particular planet. Well, if that's true in the Doctor Who universe, then how does he decide who can be eaten, right? Who, what does he eat? That's the whole point of the two doctors when he turns yeah. into a vegetarian. Wouldn't it be monstrous to continually visit planets where intelligent creatures are eating <laughs> other intelligent <laughs> creatures and only you know that the victims are intelligent? Wouldn't you do everything you could possibly do to try to stop that, especially if you're the doctor? What does that look like inside of his head? What does he do? Is it just a slaughterhouse everywhere he goes? <laughs> What's in that sushi he's eating <laughs> when, he, when he's waiting on the stakeout? What's in that? Is that it's vegetarian? Just, this is one of the vegetarian. rare times when you see the doctor just flat out eating. It's just, oh, I love that, too. It's like, yeah. well, I bring snacks, of course. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like, uh, you? like you almost get the impression the doctor just lives on some kind of energies from the Eye of Harmony or something. Yeah, like Artron energy. Like he doesn't actually need to eat, but so it's kind of interesting to see him just eating in, in an aggressively casual sort of way. And of all the doctors, I think the 12th is best suited to sushi yeah but i am totally going to revisit the mr huffle or mr. whatever huffle. his name is it's like when tom at, baker's with your interpretation yeah when tom baker said that I, he didn't need a companion he was just going to have a head of cabbage talking <laughs> that he would talk to it's really when you think about it in this way it's kind of the same i'm glad that capaldi took mr huffle with him and i hope that he's there what on the tardis console for what the if next he's season. the new guitar this season <laughs> instead of a guitar he just squeezes that <laughs> Okay, folks, that wraps up uh, another edition of uh, Get Off My World for this time. Uh, next time, we will be discussing the latest War Doctor audio stories that came out recently. Uh, and uh, something from the randomizer, which... Uh, well, let me spin that up. Yeah, Thank yeah, you, yeah, Calvin. Yeah. <laughs> Legopolis. Really? No kidding. So we have three regeneration stories in a row then. Yeah, we did, yeah, because we did uh, Caves last time. That's crazy. <laughs> Join us for the craziness next time. <laughs> Once again, I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And we're saying, Get off my world! What's, I just remember, what's his companion's name? Nordal. Nordal. Nardal. Nardal. N-A-R-D-O-L-E. Like Nards. Okay. Like all the Nards. <laughs> Mr. Nards would be a better companion name, but it's okay. <laughs>